see you. Uh, just special thanks to Jordan and the team for filling in. We made a big Christmas plan with schedule, and I was supposed to take this week because Jordan and Jason were headed off to Three Hills, and, and then I got sick, and Jordan stepped up. So thank you, Jordan, for that. Um, just before we begin, I have a, an interesting, for me anyway, question for you all, is how many actually saw the new year come in? And how many have no time for that nonsense? So uh, we went and picked up Peyton in Calgary yesterday and brought her back, and she told me that, I guess, uh, in her family growing up, sorry if I'm throwing under the bus here, but she said that her parents, when they were little, they would push their clock ahead a couple of hours so that when it actually was New Year's, it was really only 10 p.m., and I thought, that's parenting genius, and I regretted that we did not think of such smart things when Smongo was younger. Uh, how, many, how many have done that? Oh, that's a unique Redicop thing. Okay, so you can tell your parents that no one else is that mean. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's good. Uh, you can turn to Exodus. Um, but that being said, we're, we're not going to get there for a long time. But before we actually start with the sermon this morning, I just want to mention something that we're going to change for 2023 uh, moving ahead. It's not really a change as much as a, an addition to our morning service. The second Sunday of the month, so next week, um, every second Sunday of the month, we're going to highlight uh, some area of ministry within our church. Now, we started doing this back when we went through our Why Church sermon series, and a few people talked about the various areas of ministry they were in. But we want to double down on that and, and take a bigger, broader view of the church, of various ministries that go on, and a lot of them are going to be more behind-the-scenes things that you might not see uh, if you're here on a Sunday morning, but that are vitally important for our church and for the, you know, the ongoing running of a, of a smooth organization, as it were. And so next week, uh, I have conscripted Shayla to start, because if we're going to start something new, it's our family that, that has to step up and do it. Uh, however, um, some of the people um, will not be up front live. They'll be pre-recording themselves uh, for those who maybe don't like public speaking or who need a few different takes to try and, you know, process through and make sure they want to say everything. So sometimes it'll be in person up front. Sometimes it'll be up on the screen. And they're just going to share with you the areas of ministry that they're involved with in the church so that you can kind of see and hear from them. One, because they're passionate about what they do and they're good at it. And so you get to actually see someone excited about these areas of ministry, and, and then you can go, man, maybe, maybe that's where I fit, or, or maybe next, next week, which Shayla's going to actually deal with the graphic design of the church, uh, posters and websites and all these things that are areas that she's involved with, that she's very good and gifted at, and maybe you're like, man, I'd like to help her with that, or maybe you're like, man, that's not my gift. And then maybe next month, someone else comes up and shares something, and you can go, man, that's something that I could get involved with. And so the idea behind this is that we, there's, there's a cliche um, that is all too true, and that's 80% of, or 20% of people do 80% of the work. And our goal is that we want the church to be spread wide so that everyone is involved using the various gifts and talents that God has given them for the health of the church. And so that's what you're going to see over 2023. Every month, we're going to highlight something, uh, and, and a lot of them are maybe areas that you will not have heard of before. So look forward to that. Okay, let's, uh, let's turn to Exodus. This is going to be probably the weirdest sermon that I've ever preached, in that as, um, as I started 
considering how long this was going to take and you know, how many Sundays I was going to go through this and what I was going to get through this week. And I realized that all we're going to do today is context and prepare us for what this series is. And we're literally going to finish by reading the first seven verses of Exodus. And so we're not going to get there for quite a while. But before we, um, before we talk about the context, I want to tell you why this has been on my heart so much. Over 2022, uh, I spent the year studying through the Pentateuch with a friend from Winnipeg. And every two weeks, we would have a little Zoom session together, and we would talk about what we had read and some of the podcasts we had listened to and other teaching that we had kind of sat under. And, and, and then we would just talk about it and, and process through all of the things. And, and when we got into the book of Exodus, I kept thinking to myself, man, this book is so important and practical for our day-to-day lives now. Uh, and we're going to look at all the reasons why. Uh, sometimes we just think of Exodus as kind of the ten plagues, um, people being brought out of Egypt, and that's certainly a central point of it. But there's so much in there that I was just overcome with, man, that's the same problem we're having now. That's the same issue that I face today. And, and there's so much wisdom that we can gain uh, from the book of Exodus. And, and so... We're going to study it through for as long as it takes. And, and I had a lot of creative ideas. I was going to go, man, 40 years in the desert, let's do 40 weeks in Exodus. And then I realized, why am I trying to make something into some, you know, neat, tidy thing when I don't even know how far I'm going to get in the next three weeks? So we're just going to go through Exodus. And if that takes until 2028, that, no, I'm just kidding. It won't do that. But probably... Either, either we'll be done by the summer for our next series, or we'll take a break in the summer and we'll get back to it. Uh, I don't anticipate it's going to take over a year, but we're just going to see what happens because there's so much in here that I think God has uh, for us. So, real quick overview is um, God is going to rescue his people, uh, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt. And of course, it does not go exactly to their plan. Uh, And that's the first thing that you can relate to your life, is how many of you have the last, let's say the last week, gone according to your plan? You know, we make plans, and and we should make plans. We're going to talk about the wisdom that God has given us to discern and to to make plans and, and move forward in them. But God is a God who is sovereign, and you're going to hear this over and over in the book of Exodus. This is one of the main themes. God is sovereign, has plan and purpose, and he's going to direct, and he's guide, and he's going to take us down roads that we never planned to go on. And, and we could call them, you know, unexpected detours. And you're going to see that through the book of Exodus. Now, you're going to see that because there's some difficult realities in Exodus is, is some of those detours are because the people refuse to follow God's voice. They refuse to obey God. And sometimes in our own life, that's true as well as we don't do the thing that we know that we're supposed to do, or we aren't faithful to the thing that God has called us to do. And and so there are consequences that come from that. But there's also the reality that God is a loving God, and as, as the author of Hebrews says, is a good loving father disciplines you for what's your good and leads you in the right paths in the right places, even when we aren't listening or when we've taken a detour, and he brings us back to his good and perfect plan. See, here's the reality. In our current Christian climate, there are some very basic Christian principles that have stood for 2,000 years since the creation of the church in the early first century 
And those things are under attack. Things from the authority and the authenticity of Scripture to human sexuality to perceived uh, relative truth. Uh, even a growing disbelief of the active involvement of God in his creation and in his people. And these things have been the bedrock for our faith for 2,000 years. And yet somehow now we seem to think, man, I, I think we know better than all of these church fathers. And, and theology is starting to push a different direction. And what the book of Exodus is going to do for us is it's going to show God is actively involved. And that God has plan and purpose and that he's going to redeem his people and he's in the process of redeeming us and he is working in the midst of their pain and he is working in the midst of your pain and my pain. Life is a journey and it's not one that we would expect and probably it's not one that we would have picked. I know that many of you, and, and over these last number of weeks as we've kind of gone through the Advent season, many of you have come to talk to me about significant challenge, serious issues. There doesn't even matter kind of the spectrum of them, but they're all over the map and, and very serious things going on in your lives. And my goal as we go through Exodus is to remind you that just as God was present with those people and just as God was working through Moses in the lives of the Israelites, so God is working through you and God is working through our church. And that we need each other, especially when life gets difficult and painful and we go, God, I, didn't, I, I, I don't want to go through this. And then we can surround ourselves with people who can help us on that journey. Community is going to be a huge part of Exodus, and, and albeit a lot of it is a community that chose the wrong thing. Hopefully we can learn from that and we can choose the right thing. So this last uh, couple of weeks as I was studying to be prepared, and I, originally I had kind of planned on kind of starting with Moses. And then I realized we're going to miss too much. And, and so I started to get into the literary design and the theme and the background and the historicity and, and all these things of Exodus. And it basically came to this is we're basically just going to talk about Genesis this morning so that we can get to Exodus. And the reason is because I, I don't want to assume that you have a real good understanding of the history of the people of Israel. I, I do think many of you have read Genesis and Exodus, and, and probably many of you have read various verses fairly recently. But I think it's very necessary for us to look at the, kind of step back and look at the macro view of God's plan, of God's call, specifically to Abram. And we're going to look at that really quickly here through Genesis, so that we can see why Exodus actually matters. I think if we just studied through Exodus, we would get the point but I think we would lack some of the depth that God has written here for us. So starting in Genesis 12, uh, and I talked about this real quickly at Christmas Eve, and this is kind of where that started as I was prepping for Christmas Eve, realizing, man, how do I talk about the Exodus if I don't talk about God's call on Abram? And in Genesis 12, God uh, reveals himself to Abram, and he calls him, and in verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chooses and calls Abraham out to be the father of a nation for what purpose? So that all the nations would be blessed. 
God's choosing of this one nation is not so that he could just kind of have one nation and that was going to be his favorite. It was he was calling one nation to be a blessing to all and to show who God is to everyone. And there's a few bumps on the road for Abram. And, and then in Genesis 17, Abraham's, his name has now been changed to Abraham. And God doubles down on this promise. Genesis 17, 6 to 8, he says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give you, sorry, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So there's this promise. This is, this is where you're going to dwell, people of Israel, in the land of Canaan. And, and in the context of Genesis 17, is, is that's kind of where Abram has landed, and he's now in Canaan. And so God's promise, this is where you're going to be for, for a long time. This is God's plan. But the first thing that happens right after that is a little famine comes in, and what does Abraham do? He runs off to Egypt rather than trusting in God. And so as the kind of story goes through that is, is there's a few kind of bumps in the road and, and due to uh, Abraham and Sarah's dishonesty and their lack of trust in God, they go through some very difficult things with the Pharaoh there and eventually kind of get told to leave and, and they do return uh, to Canaan and that's when God gives this promise in Genesis 17. And then Abraham, I'm just going real quick here, Abraham has a son and his name is Isaac and Isaac has a son and his name is and God's all about changing people's names, evidently, and he changes his name too. Right. Okay, good. I'm glad that we got that. I have in notes here. Say it out loud, see what happens. Um, but the thing about Jacob, and this is, the, this is kind of the difficulty, is, is God chooses Jacob, and God changes his name at one point to become Israel, ultimately where we get the Israelites from, except the Bible doesn't paint a very good picture of Jacob. In fact, it says that he's a liar and he's a thief. He lies to his blind father in his old age that he's not himself, but that he's his brother Esau because he wants to steal the firstborn son blessing. After he steals this, he fears for his life. He thinks that Esau is going to kill him and he knows that his dad's going to figure this out. And so he flees and he, he goes to work in another land and and then another thing that we see in there is that he ends up having two wives, one of whom he loves and one of whom he's kind of tricked into marrying. Uh, and, and then he has a lot of sons through these women. And how many sons does he have? Twelve. And we call them the 12 tribes of? Let's try that again. The 12 tribes of? Thank you. Good. I'm plugged up so I can't hear if you're actually saying anything because I'm silly cold. Um, but so we have the 12 tribes of Israel. And I actually, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, in my seminary class through Genesis, our prof spent about, I don't know, at least a good hour only on these 12 names and how God was sovereignly working and showing us as the reader all of his power and all of his plans just by how these names are given and all the implications that come throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And so if you ever want to pick up a book on the 12 names of Israel, that'll be a very fascinating read uh, for you. But that's another conversation for another time. 
Uh, one of the 12 sons is named Joseph. And Joseph kind of gets, um, actually, he's one of the most prominent characters uh, as far as amount of text in the whole Old Testament. And there's many classic Sunday school stories that, that I'm sure that kind of are coming to your mind. And, and there have been movies, right? Some cartoon, uh, uh, what was it called? The Prince of Egypt that has come out. And so there's, there's just a, a lot of kind of story about Joseph. But the question is, how much of that is really biblical story and how much of it is more remembered through the lens of kind of a Hollywood thing? And so I just want to give you a real quick story of Joseph's life. In chapter 37, we kind of read he's the younger son, and he's kind of got this youthful naivety. And and unfortunately um, for him, though he doesn't really realize this, is he's his father's favorite son because he's the only son at that point from his favorite wife. And so the Bible continues to paint this really poor picture of Jacob that, okay, yeah, maybe you were tricked into marrying um, this other woman instead of the one that you wanted to marry, but how are you going to treat her and how are you going to honor her? And he doesn't do the greatest job of that. And so his brothers get jealous because, man, Joseph is, is kind of favored highly. He's, he, he gets everything. He's kind of, should I dare say, the youngest of the family. Is that fair? No, sorry, that's maybe not fair. But he gets to be the favorite of the family, or, or sorry, of the father. And the brothers resent him. And Joseph kind of in his, we can call it youthful naivety, maybe in his youthful arrogance, he, uh, he starts having dreams and he tells the dreams to his brothers and the dreams are basically this, is you're all going to bow down to me and you're going to serve me. Well, you can imagine how that would go. The brothers get angry and, and resentful of him and, and at one point Joseph's supposed to go off and kind of check on the progress of the brothers and report kind of to his father what's going on and and things kind of reach a boiling point, and the brothers are filled with resentment and anger, and so ultimately they sell him into slavery to a group traveling headed to Egypt. And then they lie and tell the father Joseph was killed by a wild animal. But then the crazy part about this, and, and, and this is, we're going to talk kind of about the, the mirroring that we'll see throughout Exodus pointing towards Jesus, And Joseph, in his life, does that as well. Um, In fact, there's a prophecy about Jesus coming out of Egypt the same way that Joseph is going to come out of Egypt while Joseph's family is going to come out of Egypt at some point. But what we see of Joseph is it starts really, really bad. And and I'm sure that he was questioning and wondering, God, what have you done? How could you do this? But what we read is that Joseph has a faith in God and has integrity to do what is right. And, And through a a series of events, um, Joseph rises to power and he ultimately becomes second in command over the whole region. A very, very kind of unlikely story. God gives Joseph dreams. And so Joseph uh, has these dreams and he goes and he tells the the Pharaoh these dreams and and he continues to get promoted. And then God says there's going to be a famine throughout kind of the whole land. And no one's going to have enough food. But Joseph, through you, I'm going to save the world. Again, picturing, pushing forward to ultimately Jesus. And so Joseph creates this plan. Okay, here's what we need to do. We're going to have a certain number of years where, (coughs) excuse me, 
where we have a lot of crops, and then we're going to have famine coming. So they save all these crops, and they build all these storehouses, and all the lands around Egypt begin to go to Egypt to get food so that they can live. And in the land of Canaan, now we have the second time that there's a bit of a famine. And God is at work here uh, through this situation, and so the brothers come out to Egypt to go get food, and they don't recognize Joseph. And there's a big story that we don't have time to get into there as well. But ultimately, eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers that I, I am your brother Joseph. And they're fearful for their lives. After all, they sent him off into slavery. What can they expect? What does Joseph do? Joseph forgives them. And due to his high position, he's actually able to bring his whole family out to Egypt so that they might have uh, enough food throughout the whole famine, which was going to last for quite a few years. Jacob and the whole family become reconciled. But then Jacob's, uh, sorry, then Joseph's father dies. Jacob dies. And the brothers get worried that due to his death, is he going to now resent us? And is he going to go back on his word? And there's a summary statement that I want to read in Genesis 50 here that is central to the rest of kind of really the rest of Scripture and that should speak just as clearly to us as it does to to Joseph. He says this. So this is his response when they're kind of very worried that he's going to turn from his promise. Genesis 50, 19 and 20, he says, Joseph said to them, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now that, I wrote a whole paper for my, uh, my um, course in Genesis on this was the kind of pivotal moment of Genesis. This is where it's leading, not just for all the biblical characters, but for us as well, and a promise that we can cling to. Is that even when people mean abuse against us, or evil against us, or hurt against us, is we serve a God who is about redemption. And so even when somebody has bad motives, even when someone is out to get you, is God goes, that doesn't matter because I'm sovereign and I'm going to use this, this wicked, this awful, this terrible situation, and I'm going to use it for your good. Paul in Romans 8, I quote this all the time, but Paul has grasped this, and so he writes, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, God is at work. And in the story of Genesis, as it kind of draws to a close, and you're kind of thinking to yourself, they were supposed to be in the land of Canaan, and now they've gone to Egypt. And the first time they went to Egypt, it didn't go very well. So we're kind of wondering, what's going to happen? How is God going to redeem this situation? When is this famine going to end, and are the people going to get back into the land of Canaan? Well, the same, if you think about it from a metaphor standpoint, the same might be true of you this morning. Is you might be going through a season where you're thinking, man, God, this is this is crazy. Like, how am I, how am I here? You might be going through that kind of a famine. Maybe not physically in the sense of food, but maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually, maybe mentally. 
And our question is, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? And, and I don't have the simple answers for that, except to say that what man has meant for evil, God has meant for good. <coughs> and so as we look forward in our lives to step back into a macro view and go, I need to read the books of Exodus, and I need to see God's faithfulness and his provision and his promises to a people that continue to turn their backs on him. And see, the truth, and I said this already, but this is the challenging bit. I think generally, we like to think what we're doing is right and good. But are we focused on Jesus? Are we trying to do all things so that God's name would increase and his glory would be shown so that others would be brought back into relationship with God or maybe into relationship with God for the first time? Just this week, somebody texted me and was asking about a a reminder of a verse found in 2 Corinthians about how when we go through pain, part of the reason that we go through it is so that we can encourage others and, and simply so that we can know, man, I know what it's like. I've been there before. I can help you through this because God has not abandoned me. And the promise that we're going to see over and over is God will never leave us and God will never forsake us. And when we watch the people as we go through Exodus, kind of a spoiler alert, but I'm sure you all know this, is over and over and over they turn and they disobey God. And over and over God has mercy and compassion. And yes, there are many consequences for it, and some of them seem really harsh, but I think as we read through Exodus together, we're actually going to see the harshness much less, and we're going to see the mercy much more. There's a theme verse in Exodus 18, verse 11, and we're going to see this over and over and over as we go through this study, but it says this, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Why do they go through what they go through? So that all nations would look at it and see, look who this God is. Look how powerful he is. And so two of the main themes we're going to explore, one is God's sovereignty, as I've mentioned. That's going to come up over and over again. But the other one is that God is trying to make much of his name. And and we'll... Scholars often talk about, it, about God's fame or God's glory. And sometimes we can think, man, that's very egocentric that there's this God who's like, look how good I am. Or we can see it from the biblical text perspective and go, people continue to go their own way. And God's trying to show how gracious and wonderful and merciful and kind and loving he is so that people would realize that there's nothing that the world has to offer that compares with God. So it's not egocentric at all. It's actually God's mercy that he continues to show us how powerful he is, how mighty he is. Now, on the flip side, that might make you go, if God's so powerful and if God's so mighty, then why am I going through what I'm going through today? And I don't have simple answers for any of those questions. And and I don't think the Bible says these things simply either. But what I think it is doing, and we're going to see this through the life of Moses, specifically, are we going to trust God even when things go awry? Are we going to trust God when life gets very messy, very bumpy, very unexpected, very painful, when I have grief that I don't know how to deal with, when I have physical pain that I'm not sure how to process, 
when I have mental uh, pain that I'm not even sure where to express or how to deal with. And we're going to constantly see over and over and over that the place we bring this to is God because at the foot of the cross, Jesus died for all of these things so that we might have hope in the midst of our suffering. We've talked a lot about that over the, the Advent season. And we're going to talk about that all through 2023. Because while, <coughs> while today is January 1st, it's a new year, and we've all made all these New Year's resolutions, how long are they going to last? Six hours? One day? A week? Maybe we will be committed to them. But what we're going to find out is that no matter how good intentions we have about whatever journey we have in our mind ahead, man, I'm going to, 2023 is going to be the year that I do this or accomplish this or whatever it might be. What we're going to find out is there's going to be a lot of detours on that journey. There's going to be a lot of obstacles on that journey. Why? Well, maybe because some of the decisions we make are going against what God has. Maybe because what we have planned, God has a better plan for us, and so he's constantly going to be pushing us in a different direction. And then also because this, here's a reality, we live in a broken and a fallen world. And according to Paul in Ephesians, is our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but who's it against? The spiritual forces that exist in the heavenly realm. Is the simple truth is that Satan does not want us to follow after God. He wants us to question, he wants us to doubt, and he wants us to deny. And as I said at Christmas Eve, we see that all the way back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are, are confronted and the serpent, the Satan goes, mm, did God really say this? Shouldn't you be able to eat that? Shouldn't that be okay? And instead of trusting that what God said is right, they try to redefine that for themselves on their own terms. And then the next generation does, and the next generation does, and the next generation does, all the way down until we get to us. And, and as I mentioned at the beginning, is now core doctrine that has stood for 2,000 years since the early church is being attacked all over the world. Do we really need to believe this or that? Do we need to believe that, that Jesus was born of a virgin? That's scientifically impossible, so I can't, I can't go there. Well, if you can't go there, then then where else can't you go? And all of a sudden, the scriptures start to crumble. Next week uh, on Sunday after church, I leave for my next seminary course, and, and it's all about bibliology, why we can trust that the Bible is true and authentic. And, and in one of the books that I was reading leading to that moment, there was a big group of scholars that said this, is miracles can't happen. Scientifically impossible. And so that was their only problem with the Bible. But as the years went by and the philosophers came in and, and, and various theologians who denied miraculous works came in, they started to have to make concessions for the Bible. And go, oh, well, that's not really what that means. That actually means this. And, and that got so far down the rabbit trail that all of a sudden we went this way, is if miracles can't happen, then that means Jesus couldn't have raised from the, or raised, been raised from the dead. And if Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead, then what is Christianity all about? It all falls apart. And so this is why we want to get back to the core of we can trust that what God says is true, what God says is right, and just because it's written thousands of years ago in the, books of, in the book of Exodus doesn't make it any less true or relevant today. 
Yes, there are some cultural things that we're going to have to navigate our way through. But it's not as though there's two Bibles, the Old Testament that's irrelevant and the New Testament which is relevant. It's there's one word of God. And he has written this to us that we might know who he is so that we can see in one way that we can learn from the people of Exodus and not make those same mistakes over and over. That we can say what God says is true, is right, is good. I'm going to submit to that. Even when it's hard, even when I don't understand. And I'm going to do that so that as people see my life, they can look at it and go, why would you submit to a God who hasn't given you all the things that you wanted? And we can explain to them that if I got everything that I wanted, it wouldn't be good. That there's a God in heaven who knows what I need far more than I do. And that's the kind of God that I want to follow after. One who knows all things. One who is working in all things. And I don't want to serve a God who won't give me pain. I want to serve a God who will give me purpose in the midst of pain. Because pain is unavoidable. And so this is where the book of Genesis has led us to. And this is the people that we're going to read about. And so let's read these. This is just a super weird way to close this part. But we're going to read the first seven verses. We're going to pray. And then we're going to transition into communion. And then next week, we'll really get into Exodus. So as Genesis closes, here's how Exodus opens. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers and all the generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. It almost feels like that little bit of Exodus could kind of be the conclusion to Genesis. Because as we get into verse 8 next week, we're going to see a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And things go from good to really bad. But what I hope that we're going to see over the coming weeks and months is that as things go from good to bad, circumstantially, God steps up more and more and more and more to show that he is involved in every bit of the journey. So friends, I just want to finish with this. I know life is messy. And I know for some of you right now, it's very painful. God is at work in the midst of that. And it might be hard to see right now, but that's why we have scripture to step back from and take a macro view of God and see God is who he claims he is. And the promise is that God will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Let's pray. <coughs> God, thank you for the story of the Old Testament. And as we look forward to the story of the Exodus, as we look forward to reading and seeing your plan of salvation, of bringing the Israelites out of slavery and into the land of Canaan, the promised land, may we see all the parallels to our own life that through Jesus that we have been brought from death to life. 
that we are no longer slaves to sin, but now we are servants of righteousness. God, remind us in our pain and in our hurt, in our uncertainty and in our confusion that you are at work. And even though maybe we can't see it right now, help us to have faith and trust that you are there. As we read through these stories, may we be reminded that you are the same God of the Exodus as you are today. And that you are at work in our lives to bring about the glory of your name so that all nations would see it. So that our families, our co-workers, our friends, they would see it and they would say, why would you serve this God? And through that, may we be able to introduce people to Jesus. So God, as we go on this journey through Exodus, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us. Amen. If you want to flip ahead, we're going to take communion together. And if if this is kind of a new practice for you, uh, let me just explain what happens here, and, and we're going to talk about this as we get to that uh, the section in the wilderness in Exodus about the manna that's given um, and the correlation that it has to communion that we take now. Is one of the practices of the early church that Jesus gave to them to do was that when they came together, that they would not only worship, not only remind themselves of the truth of Scripture, not only do acts of service, though all of those were part of it, but they were to come together and that the very meal that they would eat, which that was kind of the normal tradition, come together, worship, and eat, that even at that meal that they might remember that the physicalness of the bread and the cup, that, that while all it physically is, is a, you know, in our sense, a cracker and, and a, a little glass of juice, is they represent something far more, is that we don't rely on the physical, but we rely on the spiritual. And so what we do is we pass out um, the cracker, which represents Jesus' body. We pass out the juice, which represents Jesus' blood, and we remind ourselves that it is in him that we have hope. It is in him that we trust for all things. And it's in him that we wait for the second coming of Christ. Jesus promised that he would come again and that he would right all wrongs and that he would take us, the church, to be with him for all of eternity. And so the first Sunday of every month, this is our tradition, and some churches do it every Sunday, some churches do it four times a year, whatever it is. I don't think that matters as much as the intentional moments that we take to remind ourselves that Jesus went to the cross for our sins. That he died in our place as a substitute so that we might be able to have life and we might be able to have eternal life. And so I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and then I'll just get Lee to come up and then then we'll pass out um, the elements to you this morning and then we'll take and we'll eat and we'll drink of those together. But here's what is written in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so when we pass these out, that's, that's what I challenge you to do is to just do some internal reflection and simply ask this question. Is are you living for Christ or are you living for yourself? The reality is, I'm sure that if you're here this morning that you want to live for Christ. The problem is that we have this thing called sin nature that really distracts us. And we'll say things like, life is very busy or or hectic, or man, I'll find time to, to read and to pray, but it's just, it's just this season is, is just filled with a lot of stuff. And, and what the principle of the, new church, or the early church here was is to slow down from all of that. And in these moments, you got nowhere to be, you got no place to go, the emails and the phone calls can wait for a few more minutes. And we can clear our minds of all that stuff, and we can remind ourselves that the only reason that we have hope The only reason that we have assurance of salvation is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So Beck is going to put on a song very quietly, and I just encourage you to just evaluate your heart. Evaluate your own life and see, am I trying to follow after Jesus? And commit to doing that today. Let's pray. God, as we pass out, this little cracker which represents your body which was broken for us. May we take very seriously in these moments that Jesus came to the earth, that he died in our place so that we might be able to live and live for eternity with you. So God, help us to evaluate our hearts right now. That we might evaluate and see what parts of our life are taking up too big of a part. And help us to see ways in which we can put you first in all things. God, we thank you for this bread, which represents your body.